Amen. You know, we are um, living in a great country, and I am so proud of our heritage, of our history, and, uh, and I just want to make that known, that we support and we believe in our country, but we do so in a way that honors God. We don't put the flag above God. We put God above. We serve a great God that has given us a great country. And uh, so thank you for being here. Thank you for celebrating the 4th of July. And let's be thankful, truly, that we have a God that we can worship and that we can serve. Yeah. You know, I'm really excited about this study in Malachi that we're beginning um, because it is so relevant to our society today. And uh, I think if Malachi were here, the prophet Malachi, I think if he were here today, I think he'd be pretty much given the same message. Uh, as he's giving to the people of his day. Last week, we spent all of the day kind of given a historical perspective, the best I could do, actually, of the Old Testament. And I know it's hard to do in a particular sermon. And it's difficult, but um, we went through the history of the day that the prophet was dealing with because the people had, um, they had a lot of problems, and they dealt with a lot of stuff. And um, so today we're going to finish that introduction, and then we're going to get into the, the first part of Malachi. And uh, I can pretty much say that this study will be more than two weeks. Um, <laughs> I don't think I've done anything in less than two weeks. Um, but I just want to tell us today, I, I just want to, um, I just feel like I just need to say it again, how much God loves us. And I think that sometimes we get distracted in life and we kind of forget the fact that God loves us and that he has concerns for us and he's all about us. That's why he made us. He's all about us. I appreciate that. Malachi was dealing with history. He had a 4,000-year history of the Israelites at that time. And that's what he was being motivated by. The fact that the Jewish people, the chosen race that God loved and that he, he chose to be uh, the people that he would speak to the world through, that they had a problem of rejection. They had a problem of not trusting God. Even though God reached out to them over and over in love, they just had a problem. And so God's reoccurring theme in the Old Testament is love for his people. When you read through the account of the Old Testament and all the stories and all the history there, you just can't help but see the fact that God is calling out love to his people. He's saying, guys, I love you so much. All I really want from you is to come and love me back. Come and be a part of my family. That's what, the old, that's what the Old Testament's about. Now, we see a lot of stories. We see a lot of gruesome details in the Old Testament, a lot of fighting, a lot of death, a lot of bloodshed, where God said, wipe out people, wipe out whole genealogies of people. It doesn't, because, it doesn't mean he doesn't love people. It just means that people have had the choices through their lives to make choices that prove over and over again that they're not honoring God. And in those situations, it, was, it would have been a death blow to the Jerusalem, to the, to the Israelites, if you will, if they wouldn't have stayed away from the compromising of the, of the evil people of that day. So it, it became very real, became very um, intentional. God was calling them back to love, but he was calling them to love through a separation of the world. The kind of love that God had for us is, is agape love. Now, we've gone through the love discussions in the past, but agape love is, is really defined as God's love for us, his active love for us, which is a strong, compassionate, unchanging devotion to you and I, for our good, even if we don't reciprocate. Even if we don't return it back to him 
Agape love is a, is a love that says, I love you even if you don't love me. Even if you don't share your love with me, I still love you. And that's what God is saying through the whole Old Testament. God's perspective is always bigger than ours. He always see the, he sees the big picture from the small picture. He sees the, he sees the end result over the consequences or over the, the situations of the day. And I think it's safe to say that man's perspective is most of the time in the near time. It's most of the time what's in front of you and I is what you're dealing with probably in your spirit. It isn't mine for the most part, but it's just, just be honest with ourselves. It was in the Old Testament. It was in the times of, of the of biblical days that the people struggled with the, in the moments that they were in, and they didn't see, they, they had a hard time envisioning, hard time seeing the big picture that God saw. Thus, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to get discouraged. And it's easy to get totally wrapped up in the things that fall short of God's plans. And according to the definition of falling short from the glory of God is the definition basically of sin. Um, Sin isn't necessarily always limited to the really bad things that we do or people do. Sometimes it's limited just to the fact that we fall short. And we stop trusting or we the sin of omission. God asks us to do something and rather than doing what God asks us to do, we go our own way. Well, that would be a sin. And yeah, it may not be really apparently bad, but it keeps us from that relationship that God wants us to have with him. And I know that when we talk and read through the Old Testament and we study it, I know that it could become very negative and very pessimistic. Because the way God deals with people is in perfection the way he is perfect. And we're not perfect. And so sometimes we struggle in our imperfection with dealing with God's perfection because we think that, well, because we're not perfect, that God is always displeased with us. Well, I would say that God is not displeased with you and I. He he's detests sin, but he loves you and I. He knows that we're going to struggle. He loves us, and he's working with us. He's very patient. But human nature, as proven through the Old Testament, is set against God. Malachi had 4,000 years of history that would show that. We have 6,000 years of history that would show that basically the human nature I mean, the nature that's not redeemed, the nature that's not covered by the blood of Christ, is set against God. The Bible says that we, are, we were enemies of God until we accepted him, except until we accepted Jesus as our Savior, and then made him our Lord, that we were actually enemies of the cross. That's just the basic nature of humanity. And by, by nature, we are basically narcissists. We basically can see everybody else's problems, but we have a hard time seeing our own. If you go down and walk the streets of Charlevoix or any major street or any street and talk to people, and if you have a conversation with them and ask them the question, are you going to go to heaven when you die? If they believe in heaven, (laughs) they're probably going to tell you, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Well, why? Well, because I'm a good person and because I do good things. That's the narcissistic perspective of life and that we just think that we're good enough. And I'm not saying that in a way that's negative. I'm not saying that in a way that for those that are redeemed that we're, that we're uh, on, our, uh, on our way to hell. I'm not saying that at all. I, I'm just saying that, that real, realistically we need to see that our nature is we try to justify ourselves in our narcissistic way of living. And um, God is trying to say, I I need you to see the truth. I need you to see truly what I think of that. I love you, but I don't like that thinking. 
I love you, but I don't like the way you think about yourself sometimes. And I know a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Leland, he gave a message on Father's Day and, and, and how important it is that we see ourselves the way God sees us. Yeah, and I love that message because it tells me that God loves me. And that God tells me, that tells me that he has the best in store for me. But if I do it in a way, if I see that in a way that um, is thinking that God loves me and because he loves me that he's going to ignore some of the things in my life that he's not pleased with, then I'm not, I'm not seeing love in a right perspective. He loves me enough that he wants to change me so that I love him back. And I think we need to recognize that. And that's, that's the theme of the Old Testament. We ended last week's message by talking about the question that the people had. Because the people saw around them ungodly people that were relatively successful and they were supposedly godly people and they weren't successful. And so they started questioning God and they started questioning God maybe the way we do sometimes and that they, they criticized God for uh, not rewarding good living because I'm living good, at least in my mind I'm living good, at least in their mind they were living good, but yet they were not being rewarded for it. And then the other side of that same criticism was the fact that, well, God, why don't you punish people that aren't living good? Why do you allow those that are ungodly, that are truly living an ungodly life, by their own admission, they're atheistic or they're agnostic or they have all the other issues and they readily admit it, but yet, God, they have more money than I have. And God, they don't appear to be as unhealthy as I appear to be. And lots of things. And so they, they ask God, well, why aren't you rewarding good living and why aren't you punishing bad living? So why bother then living for God? That was basically their, their, their premise. The people that living in Malachi's day, they were basically saying, God, then why do I even work at it? Why bother? Because apparently you don't care about us. That's the message of Malachi's day. That's the, that's the deal, some of the things that Malachi was dealing with because the people were uh, expecting God to show up in mighty ways. Remember now, the timing here is that this is 100 years after the Jewish people have been in exile. They were in exile for 70 years in Babylon. And after the king of Persia captured the Babylonian kingdom, King Cyrus had a move of the Lord in his heart. Even though he wasn't a godly king, God still moved in his heart. And he said, send my people home. So he sent the Jewish people home back to Jerusalem and they could rebuild the, the walls and they could rebuild the temple and they could enter back into their Jewish sacrifices again. And, and you can read that account all throughout. You can read that account in, in, uh, in the Old Testament. And so now it's, they've been home. Nehemiah came, and they re, you can read the account of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls. Ezra talked about how Ezra, the, the prophet Ezra, was talking and teaching godly principles again. So there was good godly wisdom and godly knowledge in the area. And after 100 years of this, the people were starting to say, well, God, why aren't you showing up in our life? Why aren't you bringing all the promises that you promised us? Why are we still struggling with our finances and our crops and our, all the issues that we have in life? And, and so they were really beginning to question God. And what's interesting about the book of Malachi is I was studying this, and I am not an English major. I'm not a person that would pick this up on my own. So I, I didn't pick this up, but a Bible teacher did. And it's, what's interesting is, is he, he made the comment that when you read through the book of Malachi, you see that it was written in prose and there's nothing poetic about it. Now, what does that mean? What's different? Uh, the prose is just a, a way of speaking, very factual. It's not, it's, it's not really story form. It's not poetic in nature. Um, a poetic um, book would be the book of Psalms and some, many of the other uh, Old Testament books, that, that God spoke a lot in a poetic nature to his people. And what that indicates is that there's love there. 
And that there's a compassion there. Um, you know the poems that are written on Valentine's Day? Uh, you know, violets are blue and red, or roses are red, violets are blue and I love you and all these other good poems. It's all written because we love people. And so the poetic nature is, is, is written often amongst lovers. People that love each other and have a desire for each other, poetry is used quite often. But what's interesting about the book of Malachi is that there is no poetic nature here. It's all prose. It's all very factual. It's almost as if God is getting tired of dealing with the people. It's almost like he's saying, guys, I've dealt with you for 4,000 years. And I'm just getting tired of dealing with you now. And so now the Malachi being the last prophet, that's why I think this book is so relevant because Whenever is something is said, the last words of somebody, they're pretty significant because they're probably trying to say, this is what I wanted. That's what I've been trying to tell you all along, but I really want you to get the point now. Uh, this is the last time I have going to speak to you, and this has proved out to be 400 years, that God didn't speak to his people for 400 years after the prophet Malachi stopped speaking until John the Baptist came on the scene. So, I think the words that Malachi had to say were pretty important. And God is, it's almost here seeing that God, it's almost uh, uh, apparent that God is saying, I'm just really tired of dealing with you guys, so enough of the poetry stuff. Let's just get to the facts. So now we see this happening. And another interesting thing about Malachi is that um, it's showing that this is kind of a give and take type of a conversation. Malachi um, is being heckled by the people. They're, whenever Malachi says something, they're questioning him. They're, they're heckling him. They're throwing a, a reason why they shouldn't be listening to him. It kind of re- reminds me, uh, when I was going to school at Michigan State, every once in a while, um, a, a evangelist, I don't know what else to call him, but evangelist would come on campus and he'd start preaching right between classes. And so the kids are going back and forth to classes and lots of kids, you know, going back and forth. And, and all of a sudden, some guy gets up and starts preaching stands on a little stool or starts preaching. And, and it wasn't long and it'd gather a crowd of kids. And a crowd of college kids would heckle that speaker. And yeah, he's speaking truth. And, and I got to tell you, I stood in the back a lot of those different things because I was a college student at the time. And I will tell you, I probably wasn't, I will just tell you, I wasn't living the way I should have been living. I knew the truth. I knew what he was saying was true. But I listened to all those hecklers heckle that man. And, uh, and I just, I mean, it really hurt me. It, I mean, it impacted me. I, I, didn't, I didn't participate. It didn't change my life at that moment. I will say that. But the heckling was there because he was speaking truth. And the kids didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear the truth of the way they were living, the way I was living. And so the heckling became worse and worse. And that was what was happening in, in the days of Malachi as well, that they would heckle him and they would bring up all kinds of reasons of why they shouldn't be listening to him. And I often wondered, what good is he doing? What good is that person doing? Is he really, is he really helping God? Because he, he just makes, it's making himself look like a fool, quite honestly. And, it, and I just didn't see any fruit in it. But here's the thing I don't know is that I don't know how many people, how many kids of that day, or how many people in Malachi's day went home thinking about what that preacher said. Uh, I mean, it, was, must, it must have been significant enough because I remember it. And there probably was enough pause given to me that it made me think about, wow, way am, how am I living? And so just because a person is being heckled doesn't mean that his message isn't true, and it doesn't mean that he's not effective because he probably is more effective than what he realized. So as we get into the Malachi's day here, that's the kind of the, the way that it was being, the dialogue was given back and forth. And the people were feeling abandoned by God. And so now the first thing that Malachi had to do, which we find as we start now into the study of Malachi, if you ch- open your Bible to Malachi chapter 1, and we're going to read the first five verses Malachi chapter 1. I know it's hard to read here, but I'm trusting you to have a Bible and uh, open it up. 
Well, we see the first thing that Malachi does is he starts talking about God's love. The first thing he does before he gets into dealing with sin is he wants them to know how much God loves them. And I think that's so important that we recognize how much God loves us. Because it's only as we recognize God's love and his passion for us, the way he chases us down, the way that he is always pursuing us, is that if we don't recognize that he's doing that because he loves us, we can misunderstand God. And we can misunderstand his attempts to get our attention as, as attempts to hurt us instead. And so Malachi wants to talk to them, and he wants to show them how much God loves them. So let's read this, Malachi chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is in the New Living Testament, or New Living Translation. Malachi says, This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. Verse 2, I have always loved you, says the Lord. But you retort, really? How have you loved us? You hear the response here? Malachi says, I've, God said he's always loved you. And right away they say, really? How has God loved us? And then he goes on. And the Lord replies, this is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, but I rejected or I hated his brother Esau and devastated his hill country. I turned Esau's inheritance into a desert for jackals. Esau's descendants in Edom may say, we have been shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. But the Lord of heaven's armies replies, they may try to rebuild, but I will demolish them again. Their country will be known as the land of wickedness, and their people will be called the people with whom the Lord is forever angry. When you see the destruction for yourselves, you will say, truly the Lord's greatness reaches far beyond Israel's borders. Now, this may not be a description of God's love the way you would have thought God describes love. <laughs> I mean, you really have to dig in here a little bit about what, what is Malachi saying here? What does Jacob and Esau have to do with God's love? And how that God loved one and rejected the other, what does that really mean? So we need to understand, we need to dig into that a little bit to understand what really is being said here. The first thing that... Malachi says is that he declares that this message that I'm giving you is an oracle or is a message from God. So he's establishing here that this is not just Malachi speaking. This is not just a man speaking. This is God's message because Malachi means my messenger or the messenger of God. So that's what his name means. So he's making it obvious here that this is the Lord's message to the people of Israel through Malachi. But they come up and they ask the question right away, well, how does God love us? Does God really love me? Maybe you've asked that question. If God loved me, then why the problems in my life? If God loved me, then why did my spouse die early? If God loved me, then why is, my, why is there sickness in my family? If God loved me, why am I struggling in my finances? If God loved me, why am I struggling in relationships with my, with my children? The, the, the questions are endless. And you all have them. We all have them. If God loved me, then why do people preach the way they preach sometimes about the way he does and the way people preach? See, it certainly sounds many times in our life that God doesn't love us. And in this, this is almost the same tone, the same message that maybe Eve might have heard in the Garden of Eden when she comes up to that tree in the garden and there's that serpent there, that snake there. And one of the first questions he asked her was, did God really say, did God really say that it was wrong to eat that apple, eat this fruit? See, the enemy comes to us very subtly most of the time. We're smart enough people and we know right from wrong enough. We're good enough people to know that I shouldn't steal and I shouldn't murder somebody and I shouldn't do some of the bad things in life. We, we know that. We're, we just know that. That's just in us. But yet the enemy comes with some very simple questions that brings us temptations. Did God really say? 
a lot of gray areas in our life. Does that really mean that I can't do that? Does it really mean that I shouldn't do that or I should do this? See, it's in the questions of the enemy that we need to answer him. We need to answer the devil. We need to answer our flesh man with the truth of, with the truth of God's word and not by, not by our feelings or our emotions. We shouldn't get in an argument with the devil based upon our feelings. We shouldn't let him get us down that path of arguing with him based upon how I feel about a certain topic or how I feel about a certain gray area. You see, if we get into that kind of an argument, if we get into that kind of a discussion, if our answer is that way against the devil's accusations and about our temptations, and if we answer him with our feelings, then be prepared for the battle that's coming. Be prepared for the onslaught that's coming because he will eat our lunch. He has had too many years. He's had too many billions of people to practice on (laughs) that have tried the same thing. And he's a smart adversary. And he knows how to dismantle an argument based on feelings. He knows how how to bring us more confusion. The more we talk, the more we spin the circle... The more confused we get, the more we try to justify ourselves, that is exactly where he wants you to go. It's exactly where he wants me to go. Because if I'm dealing with my feelings on a subject, and if I'm not talking about God's word on the matter, if I'm dealing about my feelings in the matter, the enemy will just clean me up. And he'll take me to town, and I won't have any way to stand against him. Now, why do I say that? Well, we have a good example in God's word of a person that knew how to deal with the temptation of the enemy, and he didn't use his feelings. That's Jesus. Jesus was uh, taken to the desert by the Holy Spirit for 40 days and 40 nights after he was baptized by John the Baptist. Before he began his ministry, Jesus went into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and there he prayed and he fasted meaning he didn't eat for 40 days. And the devil comes up to him at the end of that fast, and the devil tempts him. It goes like this in Matthew chapter 4. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. His purpose of going into the wilderness was to be tempted. (laughs) Think of that. We run away from temptations, and maybe rightly so, but Jesus went in knowing he was going to be tempted. Interesting, isn't it? For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and he became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, there's that question. If you are the son of God, there's that temptation, there's that accusation. If you are who you say you are, then tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say... People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus could have gotten into an argument with Satan here. He could have said, "Um, I'm not really not that hungry. He could have denied his hunger pains. He could have said, no, I'm bigger than that, Satan. I I don't need to have you tempt me there because I can handle it. I'm big enough on my own. I, I don't need this, and I'm really not that hungry. And If Jesus would have gone down that path of argument, I will say that Jesus being a man, if he wasn't divine, if he wasn't there with the Holy Spirit giving him wisdom how to speak, the devil could have said, well, you are hungry, Jesus. You can't deny your hunger because I know you're hungry. You've been 40 days without food. I know you're hungry. And if Jesus would have gone down the path and said, no, I'm not that hungry, there would have been an argument there that he wouldn't have won. The devil would have won that argument because Jesus was hungry. But the fact of the matter here, the point here, was the temptation for Jesus was was not to fill his belly with food, but he, he knew that there was a nourishment that was more than what the physical body needed, and that was the nourishment of it being in the presence of his Father. 
Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of, my, of, of the Father in heaven. So Jesus went right to Scripture. He wasn't going to battle the enemy on an argument, on his feelings or on his emotions. He went right to Scripture, and that should give us a good example. And he did that three other times. And you can go read that account and finish it up in Matthew in chapter 4 and go to the other Gospels, and they'll tell you the account of Jesus' temptation. But each time the devil came to him, Jesus didn't say, no, I don't think so, devil. No, he said, but the Scriptures say. So if Jesus is going to the Word of God, then shouldn't we be going to the Word of God? That's a great example for us. Because if I think I can beat the enemy at his game, I'm not going to. So let's just go to the Word of God. And that's what's happening to Malachi. Because the people, Malachi saying, God's saying, I have always loved you. And the people come back and say, well, wait, how? How has he loved us? Why are we going through all this stuff we're going through? So instead of getting into an argument with, Mal, uh, with the people, instead of go, Malachi trying to show them on his own, what Malachi did is he went back to Scripture. That's why he used the example of Esau and Jacob. He went to the Word of God, and he talks about the history of God loving Jacob and rejecting or hating Esau. So let's understand that. Let's talk about that a little bit more. It's, 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 this, may, this may sound strange the way it's said here. It says, but, but this is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, but I rejected his brother Esau. Now, Jacob and Esau were twins. We know that, right? They were twins, and Esau was the older twin. Jacob was a younger twin. And because of the birthright at that point in time, the older son was the one to receive the birthright. And what does the birthright mean? We, we may not see the significance of the birthright, but the birthright is very important because that gives the older person a double portion. It is a spiritual blessing as much as a physical blessing, probably more important as a spiritual blessing. But we see the birthright having a significant factor here as we, as we move through this. So as we get into that, we must recognize, first of all, that God's definitions by, of who God is, is that God is perfect in everything that he does. Perfect in everything that he says. Do you agree with me on that? Can we agree the fact that God is perfect? God is absolutely perfect in everything he does. Secondly, we need to accept the fact that God's love is perfect for us. God's love is perfect, and he's perfectly loving all the time. And in that, we have to recognize that God also, in his perfection, he hates and he detests sin. Anything that would take us away from him, he just doesn't not like it. He hates it. We have to recognize the significance of God's hate. God hates sin. He hates everything that it represents. And we also know how important choices are because it's the choices that God gives us that allow us to prove our love back to him by making the choices to say, we're going to hate what you hate and love what you love. We're going to hate the sin that you hate in us, and we're going to love you. And that's the choices that we have. And here's something that we don't think about very often, but this is important if we're going to understand the context of what Jacob and Esau are doing here. God is omniscient. Omniscient means that he knows all things. He knows the beginning and he knows the ending. In fact, he knows the end before the beginning ever starts. He knew you before you were ever created in your mother's womb. And he also knew where you were going to spend eternity. Now, I have to say this very carefully, and you must recognize that, he, that just because God knows doesn't mean he predestines. God is not predestining you. You have the right. I have the right to make the choices that I make. And that's the power of choice. And we've talked about that a lot in our church. The power of choice is the most powerful force. And God trusts you and me with the power of choice. But he also knows the end from the beginning. Just because he knows what I'm going to choose doesn't mean that he's made the choice for me. Does that make sense? It's kind of hard to appreciate that because God doesn't live in the bubble of time that we live in. God created time. We are living on a timeline. We are, this happens now, then this happens then, and then this happens after that, and our life is sequential in, in fashion. 
we, we can't live any other way but live in the timeline that God has created us in. But God doesn't live in that time. God, just imagine a big, a big bubble here, okay? The big plexiglass shield of beginning and time and ending of our lives. But God is outside of that bubble. He sees the end before the beginning ever happened. So it's important we recognize that because he knows how people are going to affect and, and are going to relate some, to some choices. So when God says, I loved Jacob and I rejected Esau, it wasn't that God made Esau a way that was going to be rejected by him. It's because of the choices that Esau was going to make and that he made that God said, I chose Jacob because Jacob, even though that he wasn't perfect, his heart was always going to be for me and I knew that. Esau, on the other hand, was going to be contemptuous of his birthright. Esau, on the other hand, was going to be a failure all of his life when it came to serving God. So Malachi is stressing to the fact here that God has proven his love to you because he has given Jacob to you, the man that loved God and the man that you are an ancestor of versus Esau. Because Esau's ancestors, the Edomites, were destined to failure. That's why he talked about them never being able to rebuild. They couldn't rebuild. Even though they were going to rebuild, God said, I will not let them rebuild because I don't love them, because they don't love me. I shouldn't say God doesn't love them, but God, they didn't choose God. And so therefore, if people that don't choose God, God's blessings doesn't go to them. It's a hard thing to think about, but it's the truth. So because God knew the outcome before Esau made the choices, God could clearly say to Malachi to tell them that. Say that I loved Jacob and I rejected Esau and that proves my love to them. And maybe we need to understand how the words loved and, and hated are used so that we can get a better a deal of that. My, my Bible commentary said, says this about the term rejected or hated. Let me read this to you. It says the term rejected or hated, depending what translation you read, as it's used here, is meant to simply show the extreme contrast between how God had worked through Jacob's descendants and what became of the descendants of Esau. The families of Esau showed no desire for God's ways, yet Jacob's did. So God allowed Jacob's descendants to inherit the covenant blessings he made to their grandfather Abraham, and Esau's were cursed because of the choices they were to make. Genesis chapter 25, verse 34. This goes back to when Esau and Jacob were still brothers. And they were, Jacob was a man of, he, he liked to stay home. Where Esau was a hunter, a man's man, if you will. And he was out hunting one day and he came back starving. And Jacob was home making a pot of stew. And we, we know this account where Esau has come in and said, I'm starving, I'm starving. And Jacob says, well, I'll give you a pot of stew. I'll give you a bowl of stew if you give me your birthright. Not a very good trade. And I, I don't even know that Jacob even knew that Esau would bite on it. He might have been just kind of a cynical, I'll give you this. I'll give you the pot of stew if you give me a birthright. And Esau said, yeah, I'll, I'll make the deal. Then Jacob, according to this passage, then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. And by this, he showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. In other words, he, he showed his contempt for the birthright. Basically, what he was saying is, God, I don't care about you. I don't care about what your future is for me. I'm just hungry, and I want some stew, and I want it now. So that just proves here that Esau was never a man after God's heart. And then you go back and you can read other accounts in Genesis where it proved that Esau did things just to spite his parents. He was told that he shouldn't marry ungodly women. He should just marry godly women as Jacob did. And so what he actually did is he went out to spite his parents and actually married ungodly women just to spite his parents. Again, it showed no, no concern for his birthright. He didn't care about God. He didn't love God. That's why God rejected Esau, but yet he chose Jacob. If we go on, and let's just continue reading this. I turned Esau, this is Malachi speaking again, verse 3. I turned Esau's inheritance into a desert for jackals. Esau's descendants in Edom may say, we have been shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. But the Lord says, no, 
They may try to rebuild, but I will demolish them again. Their country will be known as the land of wickedness. And their people will be called the people with whom the Lord is forever angry. So when God says that he loves one and hates the other, we can see now how God's perspective of love and hate are. And I got to wonder, too, how many times that's relevant in our lives today. How many times are we focused on the immediate needs that we have rather than focused on the promises that God's giving us to stay the course? We give in too easily to a, to a worldly compromise because it's easier, because it, meets, it fits my, my needs sooner, because I don't trust God for the eternal. So therefore, I will go to the quicker thing. I'll go to the more immediate solution. That's just a good, good warning for us. And then finally in verse 5, he says, When you see the destruction for yourselves, you will say, Truly the Lord's greatness reaches far beyond Israel's borders. Again, we see the fact that God is eternal. He's looking at the bigger picture of things. So we're seeing God's love here. Malachi is going back to Scripture to prove to the people that God's love is more than what you see in your immediate needs. Because remember, the people were questioning God. They were, they were saying, why? What good is it to live for God? And as we continue to, to, to go into the study in the weeks to come, we're going to find that, that Malachi had to deal with some direct issues with them. But he had to, first of all, establish God's love. Jackie, would you come and we'll just wind this down today because I, I just want us to, to just focus here that just because we don't see God working doesn't mean he's not working. Just because we don't see his hand at work in our lives doesn't mean that he's not actively engaged. You may be praying for a son or a daughter that is wayward. Don't give up. Keep praying for them because you just don't know what God's doing. You may be heckled. The enemy may be heckling you in your prayers. You may be praying for them, and he, he, the devil may be coming. Stop it. You, they're not going to, it's not going to happen. God's not going to move on their life because it, look, at, look, what's going, look what they're doing today. Well, yeah, what they're doing today is not right, and we know that, but that doesn't mean that that's gonna, what they're, what they're going to be doing tomorrow. We just keep believing in them. We keep praying for them. We keep holding on to them. That we don't become questioning of who God is because we don't see the immediate happening right now. Maybe it's in your health. Maybe it's in your finances. Whatever the situation is, God is working for you, whether you know it or not. Because he loves you. Because he loves me. His bigger picture for us is he wants to spend eternity with us. And you know what? We can give up a few years here, can't we? We can put up with some stuff here that may not be real good, but I know that I have a future. And that's what I want to focus on. I want to focus my life on the eternal because that's what God is focusing on in our life. You know, God made the covenantal blessings of the day of the, to the Jewish people were promises that God would not break. God's covenants are promises that he will not break. It may not appear to us that they're coming to pass. That's the problem that Malachi was dealing with. It didn't appear to the people that his covenant was there, but it was. So I just want to encourage you today as we pray, and I want to sing the song as we end here. I want to just challenge us this morning that to know that God is always at work. Let's pray. Father, help us to see your hand. Help us to see your, your love for us. Help us to recognize how much you love us, even in the times when it doesn't appear to be that way. Even in the times when the enemy is heckling us. We may feel doubt in our, in our prayer time. We may feel doubt and fear in the early morning hours when we wake in the, in the night. We may feel fear that the enemy is overcoming us. But God, that's not what your word says. Your word says that you are 
bigger and you are greater. Greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world. Help us to deal with the enemy according to Scripture, not according to our feelings about Scripture. Help us to deal with it the way Jesus dealt with it and what Scriptures say, that we would remind ourselves what the Bible says so that when the enemy comes to us, that we say, enemy, leave because you must flee. Submit yourselves then unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's what it says in the book of James. Submit yourselves then unto God. Then resist the devil. And he flees not because of how big you are, but he's fleeing because you're submitting to Jesus. Because you're submitting to God. And the devil can't stand against that. So I just pray for these people today. I pray for this church and I pray for everybody in the sound of this message that you would just strengthen us and encourage us to know that you love us and that you are for us as we then surface our submission to you and as we bring it to you, we go deep in submission here, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me if you would and let's sing the song that Tom and Jackie are playing and Waymaker and let's just... Let's just go out today knowing that we are above the situations and God's working even when we don't see it. Amen? Amen. Let's sing this morning.
You know, sometimes it's easy when we are in church to believe this song. It's easy to embrace it and to say, yeah, that's the God I serve. But I just want to encourage you this week that this song is for tomorrow and for Wednesday as well as for Sunday. And let me just encourage you. If you need someone to help pray with you, would you reach out to somebody? Would you call your friend that knows how to pray? Would you call me? Would you call your somebody? Reach out. Don't don't go through the week thinking that you're on your own. Don't do that because it's not right. I know some of us go through weeks and we struggle in our days. We struggle in our nights. Well, pick up the phone. It's the devil keeping you from doing that. Pick up the phone, text somebody and say, would you pray for me? I need help right now. I need somebody to believe with me. And I want you to know you have a church that will believe with you here. So call us. Call somebody. Father, I just come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, my heart's broken because I know so many people go through life so many are so alone and so afraid. But Lord, you are the way maker. And you really are for us. And we just agree today. We stand against the enemy's accusations. And we stand against his temptations. And we stand against the fear of being alone. We are not socially distant. We are socially together. We are together in our prayer time. We are together in our belief. Because we know who you are. And we know who we need to be. And we know what you think of us. Because you love us. And we love you back. And we just give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Be blessed.